Hello and thank you for tuning in for another episode of Soundstage Access, a podcast that brings you in-depth to discuss many of the complex, beautiful, and creative sides of filmmaking. I'm your host, Brando Benetton, and my guest this week is Joe Kramer, a prolific film composer whose work includes Jack Reacher, Mission Impossible, Rogue Nation, among many. In our conversation, we talk about a wide range of topics, from Joe's first composing experience at age 15 scoring a feature film, to the influence the work of John Williams had on him and an in-depth creative discussion into his award-winning work for Rogue Nation. So without further ado, let's go to our conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. It's an absolute pleasure. You know, we're going to cover a wide range of topics, but if we had to start from the beginning, I knew you have a love for all aspects of filmmaking, not just composing. And I was curious to ask you, if you were to look back, when do you think you started to look at movies in musical terms and break them down? Well, I saw Star Wars in 77 when it came out, and I was fascinated with the whole experience, the movie, the toys, the comic book, and the soundtrack album. So I was aware of movie music from, you know, I was six when that came out. So from that age, I was listening to soundtracks and reliving the movie through the soundtrack at home, you know, pre-VHS, DVD, Blu-ray. My dad had gotten a Super 8 black and white movie at Kmart with like two scenes from Star Wars. And we would watch it. It was silent with subtitles. And we would watch it with the soundtrack album playing. That was, I mean, it didn't sync up. It was just random. But that was how we experienced the movie outside of the theater. And I had the novel and the comic book. And then when Empire Strikes Back came out, there was a TV special about the making of Empire Strikes Back. There had been one about Star Wars, but I hadn't seen it. The Empire one I saw, and I became aware of the whole expansive world of filmmaking, probably from that. At the same time, my father was like an amateur musician, hobbyist, and had made films, his father, my grandfather was a projectionist at a movie theater. So there was this background of goofing around with cameras and making movies. And my dad and my uncle had made this stop motion comedy film. So I grew up in this environment of, of creating music and films. And that tied in with this sort of obsession I had with Star Wars and then Superman the movie and then Star Trek the motion picture and Battlestar Galactica and then Doctor Who. All these things sort of fed each other and I just became fascinated with acting and songwriting and making movies. And each one I think, you know, overall in small pieces but informs the other. But before transitioning into the professional world, mm -hmm. you got to work with uh, a young and passionate filmmaker by the name of uh, Scott Storm. Uh, you guys were in Albany, and I'm sure even crossed paths with people like Ethan Hawke, too. I was listening to previous interviews. And from my understanding, there was and still is, you know, as we said, a, a pure passion for making movies. So with the first, you know, film score done at age 15, what do you think with all the knowledge of music you have now, if you had to say, what were some of the first concepts of music you're grasping with these early experiences? Well, the first film that I scored was a feature length film on Super 8 called The Chiming Hour, which Scott directed. And so on the first day of filming or second day of filming, I asked him about music and he was like, well, you know, I use stuff from my collection, like an instrumental Led Zeppelin thing or Tangerine Dream or Peter Gabriel. 
And I mentioned how my dad had this interest in music and we had a four track at home, a cassette four track. And we had a couple of synthesizers and I had a guitar and piano and things like that and a drum machine. And I suggested maybe I could create some music for this movie. And so he was very excited by the prospect of not having to worry about the legalities of copywritten music. So the concepts that I was dealing with were really the straightforward, most basic concepts of film scoring, which is it's a sad scene, so you want sad music. And it's an energetic scene, so you want faster music. And the skills I was completely lacking were sort of the formal ability to sync to film or to count frames or to conceive of time in a filmic sense. So instead, what we would do is either watch the movie in my studio and I would play along with it. And then that bass track, once we had a track that worked, I could build on top of that on the other tracks of the multi-track. Or I would think of the mood of the scene and write a piece and give it to Scott. And then he would put it into the movie the best way he wanted to. So it was a combination of writing to picture and sort of pre-writing and then music editing that into the movie. And this was all in the stone age where there were no computers. There was no way to synchronize the cassette deck to the projector and super eight film could have stereo sound, but it was a teeny tiny magnetic strip on a piece of super eight film. So it wasn't even audio cassette quality sound. And you did all the work on a projector that would let you record. It had a record head that would let you overdub the sound. And what we would do is the record head wouldn't fully erase the track underneath it. So we could get away with actually having sort of four tracks of audio. We would record the dialogue on on location and that would go on to like one and two. And then I could overdub a piece of music on one and it would you could still be able to hear the dialogue under the music and then we could do the same thing if we needed a sound effect it was so primitive by today's standards i mean the kind of filmmaking you can do on a phone now is miles beyond what we were capable of back yeah then. people have no excuse not to be making movies today allow me to get just really nerdy for a second because yeah. i wanted to ask about your creative process and there was a beautiful quote that i found i want to quote it back to you in regards to how you begin when it comes mm -hmm. to, to music. Quote, tempo is where I start all of my cues. That to me is the most important thing to establish when I begin writing. And that comes from watching the rhythm of the acting and the rhythm of the cutting. So you obviously rely heavily on your instincts. What is your writing process like when it comes to archiving ideas and understanding, as you, you just touched on it, but the musical needs of a scene when you have nothing? Well, the movie informs me. What the great thing about scoring a film is that the film is there to tell you what it what it needs. So I look at the movie and I let the movie inform my decision making. There's a sort of a flow chart that I go through mentally as well, starting with tempo. Is it fast or slow or medium tempo? Then is it a sort of bright cue or a dark cue? Happy, sad, major, minor? Is it brass or strings or winds? And going through this process might take 30 seconds, but at the end of that 30 seconds, I know that I generally have to write a medium tempo string cue that's dark and maybe a little sad. Well, that now I'm not, I don't have nothing anymore. Now I've got a template to work against. That's a sort of artistic template. And then the film itself also gives me what you might call a temporal template, which is when things have to happen in time. So if I've got the pace for a scene, you know, I, I know it's got to be like, boom, well, I have this tempo now. I find that tempo on the computer, build a click track at that tempo, 
and I make the first click where I want the music to come in. And then I find the points in that scene where I want to catch things specifically with music. Maybe there's a cut to the female lead's reaction to something, and I want to hit that. Then maybe there's a cut to the exterior where we see a bunch of you know bad guys swarming on a building. And I want to hit these things. Well, I know now, because I've picked the tempo, what beat those are on. And then I also know if I need to add a beat here or there to make those fall where I want them to fall, or if I need to speed up a little bit to catch something. If I have to slow down to catch something, I'm usually more reluctant to slow down because that feels like a loss of energy. Whereas speeding up, we, we gain energy. And I'm always conscious of, am I sucking energy out of this thing or am I adding energy to it? And I'm generally trying to speed things up. Generally, the, the fear among filmmakers is, is that the film plays too slow. So I'm in a process of speeding the movie up and, and helping the audience not get bored. Not that they would, but that's the fear, you know, generally with, with filmmakers is that the film is too long and slow. Allow me to skip ahead for a moment, and I wanted to talk about Reacher, because in preparation for this, it was fascinating to hear that one of the musical inspirations that you were suggested early on was uh, the score for Bill Friedkin's The Exorcist. And from my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, but the way those inspiration might have made their way into the film would have been through piano textures. It was suggested to me by the director. My instincts were more along the lines of all the president's men. But there's an aesthetic that the composer, David Shire, who did Pelham and did all the president's men had that I was very fond of. I brought president's men to the table. Uh, the director suggested Dirty Harry and the Exorcist. And there was a lot in the Exorcist that I didn't think was right for this movie. The thing that I saw in the Exorcist that kind of worked for me and my memory may be playing tricks on me now but my as if i recall correctly there's a montage where the mom and the daughter are walking around dc and it's sort of like they're taking funny photographs and as i recall there's some piano in there that's like almost like um john cage prepared piano sort of stuff that seemed to me to be something that i could take from the exorcist and apply to reacher as opposed to like tubular bells which didn't seem to me, to be in the same emotional neighborhood that Reacher needed to be in. It has a very, like, 70s vibe. Um, some of the movies we talked about, even, like, the, the opening, which feels like a De Palma movie, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, and I think what you did so well in that score specifically, it's a great example of understanding a character and musically translating that persona, Jack Reacher in this case, which is played by... Uh, cruise into the score you know so i loved uh, hearing that you know reacher's military background is immediately translated through the presence of brass right you know uh, so i was curious to ask you if if there is an approach to using whether it's a specific instrument or you know other musical tools into representing character or or a setting sometimes sure i mean the joke i always tell as a director that i worked with once who said, this scene takes place in France, so I think we should use French horns. And, like, that's just not the way to think. It's not literal like that. You know, I worked with another director who, whenever they heard a clarinet, thought it was polka music, no matter what the, what the clarinet was playing. And music is not that literal. It may be for some people, but when you're scoring a movie, when you're making something that's sort of a piece of popular entertainment, you have to think about sort of generalities in terms of the audience and not necessarily about specifics. And most people, when they hear a clarinet, do not think of polka music. So most people, when they hear low brass and a snare drum, are going to think of, uh, like, military. 
you know, most people when they hear the French horn being used the way I used it in Reacher are going to think of slightly military, a certain discipline in the perfect fifth. I can't tell you exactly why it evokes these things. It's developed over the years in our understanding as a culture of music and how it relates to language and mood. And those are just things that started with Bach or even before that and were developed by the opera composers and Mozart and Beethoven through Wagner and Stravinsky and Copland into what Steiner and Korngold used in the first sound films that they scored. And from there, it's just progressed. If you write a melody with a piccolo and a tuba and they're playing the same melody but octaves apart from each other, that's just going to be funny and it's going to read to the audience as comical. It's just we've picked those sounds and formed these associations. It's funny to think, you know, about the fact that right now there seems to be a trend of music without melody, which Mm -hmm. is unfortunate uh, because... Well, it depends who you ask. I find it heartbreaking, but I know that... There's people, there's few people who do it very, very well. So I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about your love for a man who did the opposite of this. I know he was a great influence on you and created some of the most iconic film scores, and that is Mr. John Williams. Of course, yeah. Uh, And and just to remind listeners, this is the man who created iconic themes, you know, for movies such as Jaws, E.T., Superman, uh, Harry Potter, Indiana Jones, Star Wars, so many so many more and and we often talk about musical tropes and in this case there seems to be a tendency of of the use of counterpoints and sometimes specific instruments you know where you can listen to a john williams score and immediately know that it's a john williams score Uh, could you perhaps try to explain how not only his work has influenced you but why do you think his music connects with people in such an emotional way well i think williams first of all is very intelligent and he's very sort of in touch with his emotions and how music affects him and is able to translate that, reverse engineer that, and make music that will affect you the way it affects him. From a practical point of view, he may have been the first person I heard talk about the importance of tempo when writing film music. He was the first person I heard talk about the balance of music and sound. So like in Raiders of the Lost Ark, when the boulder is rolling through that cave, he knew that the low frequency rumble of that boulder was going to wipe out the soundtrack at those frequencies. And so the music is trumpets and woodwinds up high where it'll poke through the sound mix. And, you know, that translates directly to what I did in the motorcycle chase in Rogue Nation, where there's energy going on in those lower frequencies, but the motorcycle gobbles it all up. And you'll see if you were to sort of go through and break it down, there's a tendency to bring more musical elements out when we're on wide shots where the engines are not in your face. And then when we cut to close-ups of Tom driving the motorcycle or Rebecca, you've got uh, the music backing off melodically, just carrying the energy through because you're just not going to hear very much. From a practical sort of work ethic point of view, you know, John Williams has a set goal of music that he tries to write every day and he gets his work done and then he clocks out and he's very disciplined and he's very like a craftsman, like an artisan. And when you get hired to make a bureau for a client, you get hired to make a dresser for their bedroom. You design the dresser and then you build it and you do a little bit every day and then it's done and you deliver it. And then if they want changes, you make the changes. You don't sort of get wrapped up in the drama of like inspiration. Writing music for movies, at the end of the day, it cannot be a personal expression of myself unless that's in sync with what the director 
and the film need. Um, there are the rare occasions where it feels like the director and the film are at cross purposes from each other. And then I have to decide, am I going to do what the director wants or am I going to do what I think the film needs and hope that that all works out for the best. My feeling is that the film tells you what it needs. Joni Mitchell's a songwriter and she spoke once about almost all songs start from something that really happened. And almost all songs that she writes end up being a total lie because about halfway through the reality of what inspired the song stops applying to the song and it becomes something that writes itself. So she might start a song about some kid she saw playing on the sidewalk in New York. And then that might go off in a direction that has nothing to do with the reality of what she saw. She was inspired by something real, but then the song tells her what it needs. This is a topic which I think is important to talk about and that is temp music. And the reason I bring it up is because as filmmakers ourselves, uh, I realize how, not just unfair to composers it is, but the risk to creating a score that is uninspired. Well, it's a funny thing because what it is is it's very strange to watch a film with no music. We're, we're just used to the presence of music, even if there's not a lot of it. And it's very unsettling to watch a movie without music. Now, depending on the movie, that may be what you're going for. But I mean, if you're making a film like American Beauty, it can be very, it can be difficult to tell if the film works without music. And this tradition began of putting pre-existing music against the picture, just as a sort of placeholder, just to sort of say, okay, with I wasn't sure if it works, but now that I see it with some music, I feel confident and comfortable that it works. What then ends up happening is that the picture editor or the director may put a piece of music against a scene and... They may look at it and go, well, it's not perfect, but it sort of does half of what I want it to do. And depending on when that happens in the process, if that happens early in the process, they end up seeing the movie with this imperfect piece of music that by their own admission was imperfect. They end up seeing it with that time and time and time and time again. In modern American studio filmmaking, contemporary in the contemporary workplace, sometimes the composer isn't hired until like the last minute. So the picture editor and the director have already scored the movie. And it may be music that when they put it in, they acknowledge that it wasn't perfect. But by the time the composer's brought on, they've fallen in love with this music or they have gotten so comfortable with it and so used to it that it's sort of like if you send your kid to school and the kid comes home with a totally different haircut and you go, who the hell cut my kid's hair like this? And it may be a totally great haircut and it may actually be a, ha a haircut that makes your kid look better, but... You're sort of the director is the parent who has had somebody else take control of their kid. And, you know, I'm sympathetic to the position that they're in. Again, one has to look at all the factors involved. As a composer, I have to look at my relationship with the director. I have to look at what I think the film needs. I have to look at a bunch of different factors. You know, what is their expectation and balance how I proceed in terms of writing music for the film. And there's a way to be passionate about a movie and to bring my voice to the table without getting all bratty with them about the temp score. You know what I mean? There are elements of a temp score that are important to be mindful of, such as the tempo of the cue that they've slotted in and the key that it's in and the kind of instrumentation that they're using. The difficulty is when you, you sort of, as a composer, are mindful of those aspects and what they really just want you to do is copy the notes. Exactly. And that's, you know, that gets into questionable areas of copyright and, you know, um, 
artistic license. Um, and certainly in the aftermath of this lawsuit against Robin Thicke, where, you know, he got sued for a song because it sounded like another song. There were no there were no definitive things that they could point at and say, you stole that. It's just overall it's, it sounds like the other song. I would be confused. You wouldn't know which song is which. So therefore you're guilty of plagiarism. That's sort of a staggeringly dangerous verdict that was rendered, you know? Yeah. And it'll be interesting to see if that has any impact on film music, because to a degree, we all are forced to copy each other from very subtly to very obviously. But it, it, it chokes creativity. And I think it's just, you know, well, it can choke creativity, but like someone like John Williams is able to be inspired by the temp rather than be choked creatively by it. You know, you can look at Star Wars and you can say, look, it's clearly the planets right there. It's clearly the end of Mars. You can look at the scene in the desert and say that's clearly tempt with the right of spring. To read interviews with him at the time, his impression was that this film was going to be for kids. Right. That adults, you know, maybe they'd take their kids to see it, but it was not going to be some cultural phenomenon. Phenomena, right. It was going to be this thing that kids would see. And so he thought, if I put this in and maybe some kid will now go get the planets and listen to that. And being because it because they heard something like it in Star Wars, you know the Beatles were not the first people to use strings in a song, but they were the they sort of took the idea and ran with it in a way that no one else ran with it. You know, from the beginning of film music, classical music was making its way into film scores. So people are by now very aware of my deep and passionate love for Mission Impossible, okay, uh, <laughs> and specifically Rogue Nation. And I think before we start talking about the scenes, I think there was a return to classical filmmaking. And part of it, from my understanding, is that you guys chatted about the idea of having Rogue Nation be the analog chapter of the franchise. And also what that is, with your choices, is that uh, you're given Lalo Schifrin's amazing, amazing theme and many other themes to work with, the plot and, and many mm-hmm. others. I'm going to I'm gonna quote back to you specifically what you did is, quote, I tried to write a score that Lalo Schifrin could have written in 1966 when the show began. I didn't use any synthesizers nor drum loops or techno-based sounds. The instruments we used were at Lalo's disposal at his time and helped the score have a retro sound. And uh, I think it's brilliant. And I wanted to ask you about that decision and how early on you felt that was the direction to go with. Well, I was hired in September of 14 and flew to London at the end of September to supervise the shooting of the opera sequence. So I spent five weeks in London on the set of the film. The first two weeks were spent preparing for the opera sequence and then three weeks in London where I was responsible for the musical content of the opera sequence. And there was a live orchestra in the pit on set that would be miming the music. There were singers on stage who were miming the music. And there was this fight scene taking place in the rafters and backstage with Benji. And the first day I got to London, they were filming some scenes where Tom and Benji and Ving Rhames and Renner are in like an SUV. And Cruz came out from shooting this scene, walked over and said, hi, you know, I'd met him on Reacher. And the first thing he said to me was, you know, after saying hi was I want retro and I want percussion. The thing I remember the director telling me was that he was more interested in making a film that felt like the best episode of the TV show ever than a film that was a sequel to Ghost Protocol. So I was sort of given a blank slate to establish musically 
the identity of the film on its own terms, or rather I wasn't beholden to carry on anything that either Danny or Hans or Michael had done. Yeah. When I finished working on the opera sequence in England, I came back to LA where I lived and watched the first season of Mission Impossible again with an ear towards the music and an ear towards the way Lalo and some of the other composers that worked on that first season had approached scoring the show. I started doing a demo for a scene using my sort of standard orchestral template that I have in my computer, which included a synthesized sound, which you could hear in some of the cues in Reacher. And it's sort of a choral type ghostly voice sound. And it just felt wrong. And I just thought, you know, I think what I want to, and that's where I sort of got the idea. Why don't I write a score? Like, why don't I pretend that this is a pilot being made in 66 and I can do whatever techniques I want, but I have to limit myself to technically to whatever was available to Lalo at the time. And that's how I came up with that. I pitched it to the director. He loved the idea. He pitched it to Cruz. Cruz loved it. And so that sort of became the mandate, you know, and I don't know if anybody, I'm sort of proud to say, I don't think anybody walked out of the theater of mission impossible rogue nation thinking what like, what a dinosaur of a score. What a square piece of music. There's no electronics in it at all. I don't think they noticed that it was 100% acoustic. I mean, even the Star Wars scores aren't 100% acoustic, you know. And anyone who did notice the score had really good things to say about it. Because I think one of the elements that you had having fun with it is the ability of taking the theme and, and break it down into its three most basic elements. Mm -hmm. But there's a drill... And it's like, there's the bass, which is. And then there's a tune, which is like. And you take these three separate elements and you play with the audience. You use one. So the audience thinks we're going to go in one direction and we go another. Mm -hmm. Could you talk about having these three elements at your disposal and trying to sprinkle them out? Yeah. Because you only use the actual full th uh, theme three times from my understanding or two. You've probably actually analyzed that in a way that I haven't. You know, at the beginning of this process, I thought a lot about some of the things that drive me nuts in films. And one of them is when somebody is scoring a franchise picture and the music feels schizophrenic when they might include music from another part of the franchise, but it doesn't feel like it it's grown organically out of the score. It feels like it's just cut in there. Like they got the record off the shelf and just cut it into the soundtrack. That could be for a number of reasons that may be directorial, that may be the abilities of whoever's working on the music or, or putting the film together. I don't know. But I vowed on this that I was going to... I basically applied to the score for Rogue Nation what I thought John Williams applied to the scores for the sequels to Raiders and the sequels to Star Wars, which is I gave myself permission to pretend I had written the Mission Impossible theme and I could do whatever I want with it. And I didn't feel beholden to present it in a specific way, except for twice. Once in the opening montage, where we get all the misdirects about what's going to happen in the show, and then once that grew to be called the curtain call, which was the sort of finale. In my opinion, that opening montage is sort of like the yellow crawl in the Star Wars movies, or the gun... The Bond. Yeah, the Bond gun yeah, sight. You yeah. know? These are things that are established, 
and you give the audience that, and then you sort of get carte blanche to do whatever you want. The other thing was, um, and I forgot to mention this earlier, but it, it's still relevant at, in this conversation, is Austin Powers, which had so effectively skewered spy music that I was really worried about how I was going to score a spy movie without sounding like I was goofing on it. Because Cruise had specifically requested retro and percussion. And so much of what Austin Powers does is sort of goofing on retro. I mean, Clinton nailed it out of the park with his score on that. And so it was tricky to try to figure out how I could do that. And the way I decided to do it was to only do stuff that could have been done in 66. And part of what gives the game away in things like Austin Powers is that the drums and the bass, they sound modern, even though they might be doing sort of a retro arrangement. You know, the electric guitar and the electric instruments and the mic'd instruments from the rock setting. Rock music dates itself very quickly. You can listen to a drum track from the 60s and you just know it was done in the 60s. So by going with this approach of traditional instruments in a traditional way, I felt like that might help keep the thing from sounding dated four years after we made it. There's a tendency too, I think, now to just... Whenever a scene is not working, let's throw music at it. Mm -hmm. Whether it needs it or not, let's do that. And and one of the reasons I love Rogue Nation so much is because you guys work together uh, as much as possible and, and having variation and not just scenes, but sequences where you sometimes can go without music altogether. And the two that come to mind are the Taurus, where uh, Ethan jumps into the water, has to hold his breath, and there's the music playing until Elsa comes in and saves Ethan. And right after, we have two uh, chase sequences back to back. We have a car chase and a motorcycle chase, and the car chase is not scored at all. So what were the conversations in terms of how much can we get away without music? The challenge started to come in where uh, around the... Two concepts. One is was action, and one was emotion. And you'll probably find in most contemporary movies, these are the sticking points for composers. And, you know, what's developed over the past 20 to 30 years in the language of American film music is this tendency to play it cool. And to, to regard music that is explicitly emotional as being over-the-top or manipulative and that the only film music that's really cool is film music that just sort of leaves you in a trance, but but a vague trance. And I'm not knocking Tom Newman here. His music was incredibly effective, but there's a reason why that wonderful thing he wrote for the bag floating in the wind American and, Amer Beauty. and American Beauty, yeah. that single piece basically became the only piece of temp music I heard for about 10 years. And that's just all anybody wanted. And the reason why was because that music, you could put it over a bag floating in the wind and it made you feel something. And you could put it over a guy killing another man with a knife and you would feel something. And you could put it over a, a teenager who's finally kissing the girl of his dreams and it would and it would work. You could put it over anything and it made that thing seem profound without really commenting on the actual emotion of the scene and directors fell in love with that because they could kind of have their cake and eat it too they could have music but they could play it cool and be like hey man i'm not telling you how to feel and spielberg is the exact opposite of that i mean and i would argue that a movie like et or jaws would fall apart if you tried to score it with a modern sensibility i would argue that nobody looks at that shark or that puppet or Yoda in Empire Strikes Back. Nobody looks at these things and thinks they're real. 
but the music gives them breath and life in a way that we can suspend our disbelief and actually become emotionally involved and with an explicit emotion, not just a vague sort of trance emotion. If, if, if what if the specificity of what I'm saying is coming across. It, it really yeah. is. It really is. And I wanted to ask you about re- your relationship with Cruz as a producer, because I, I heard a story about um, there were test screenings of the movie and, and some of the notes that were coming back is that the movie has too many endings. Cruz, from my, from my understanding, suggested that rather than changing any of the editing of the scenes, you just simply came to you and he suggested to write a piece of score from the Blenheim sequence when they meet with the prime minister all the way to when Solomon Lane is boxed, making it feel like one big ending. Could you talk about arriving at that ending? In the years between Way of the Gun and Jack Reacher, I scored a lot of TV movies for a company called Larry Levinson Productions. Most of these movies ended up on the Hallmark Channel, with a few of them ending up on cable channels. One of them ended up on NBC. But the aesthetic at this place was from the beginning of the film to the end of the film, there's music. Whether it's score or source music, there's music playing. And sometimes if there was like a little 30 second scene, I would have a piece of music end and it would carry over into that scene, then I wouldn't score that scene, but I'd bring in a new cue at the end of that scene. And so there might be 20 seconds in the show that didn't have score. Well, I became very comfortable with conceiving a score and and, and being able to make music that could kind of never shut up, but didn't get in the way and could poke out when it needed to and then fall into the background when it needed to. So with Mission Impossible, the schedule was such that it made more sense to score the whole movie and then have them pull stuff out in the dub than it did to make a plan and then stick to it hell or high water. Because there were a few factors in this. One being that if I wrote a piece of music for every scene in the movie, they had something. The other thing was that if they then pulled a piece of music out, that piece of music now might be useful somewhere else in a way that what I ended up writing didn't work for the filmmakers. Or there might be a scene that they add between when we record the score and when they mix the movie. And this piece of music that they didn't use in scene two might be perfect for scene 38. So it just made the most sense to conceive of a musical solution for every scene. And that's why on the soundtrack album, there's a whole queue of music for the Taurus sequence that ended up not being used in the movie. The only sequence that was never properly scored in the whole film was the car portion of the chase sequence in the middle of the movie. From the moment that basically that they start chasing after Ilsa in the BMW to the moment when the motorcyclist stops and walks toward them in the BMW, that was never properly scored. There was one moment, one demo made with some percussion and some Moroccan instruments to demonstrate a proof of concept for that sequence. And after about 30 seconds of it, the director turned it off and said, I don't want it. And I was in agreement that I I didn't think we needed it for that sequence. I thought sound design would do great. And we would sort of, we'd earned the right to take that two minutes off because we were then going to give them this crazy energy in the motorcycle portion of the chase. The Blenheim sequence from the Blenheim sequence to the end of the film was essentially just keep it moving. Don't let the audience um, feel like don't give them, don't let them off the hook. The music editor was the first person to sort of bring that phrase to the table. Is like, we just can't let the audience off the hook. We have to keep them focused. The music has to keep them excited and energized until the end of the movie. 
I want to close this Rogue Nation little segment by talking about your experience in, in recording the score at mm-hmm. Abbey Road in London. Yeah. Uh, Studio One. And, and I know the love and the history that there is in a place like that. I know you had a lot of creative challenges thrown at you last minute, from my understanding, even the motorcycle chase was rescored last minute or yeah, something like that. Yeah, it was like done, in, it was written the afternoon before we recorded it's it. It's so impressive. Well, it's so impressive man. to hear that. And I was wondering what your experience was, not just recording that, but I think listeners don't understand uh, if we want to talk about acoustics for a moment, how the architecture and space of a recording a studio like that can influence the sound of, of a final score. Absolutely. And the thing that really sets Mission apart, Rogue Nation apart from almost any other score, is that we actually recorded the score twice. There is a tendency in contemporary filmmaking to record the score in segments. So you have all the violin, all the strings do the recording of the string parts, say, on Monday. And then, on, and then on Tuesday, all the brass players come in and do the brass parts. They overdub them over the string parts. And since everything's done to a click track, everybody's in sync with each other. And then on Wednesday, all the percussion players come in. And then on Thursday, you mix it all together. And what you end up with is this sort of, it's the same piece of music and it's the same orchestration. But the string players, they couldn't hear the brass when they were playing. So they weren't pushing to be heard over the brass and the brass couldn't hear the strings and you don't get that energy. It's, you know, look, I love Steely Dan, but you know, you can tell when a song has been recorded with the band in the room, like reeling in the years. And then when a song has been done like layer by layer, like some of their later stuff, I didn't want to do what they call striping or stemming where you do this, you know, instrument at a time. I'm not a fan of that. I just, I don't like it. The compromise we came up with, because the sound crew were concerned that if they all they had was the final mix of the music and they couldn't push or pull just the horns or just the strings, that it would cause difficulty in the mix. And I had a whole conversation where I said, well, I'm writing music so that you won't have that difficulty. I used to do sound. I know how to write around what's going to be there. And I know how to look at a piece without sound and know what you guys are going to put in. And it was suggested that what we do is we record the score in sections at a smaller studio in London called British Grove, which is more of a rock room, like the Stones. When we finished Mission Impossible, the Stones came in and did an album there. So we did all the strings there on their own. And in those sessions is when we ironed out any copying errors. We straightened out bowing decisions and phrasing decisions and dynamic decisions. And then we had the brass come in and the woodwinds come in and we did all that. And then we all met again a week later at Abbey Road as a band and did the whole thing. So the sessions at Grove gave us some separation for the mixers, but they also served as a sort of rehearsal. So when we got to Abbey Road, we could just play the thing. Everybody had already played it once, and it was almost like doing a concert. And so we could hit the hit the ground running and get a bunch of work done really fast. When you listen to the CD and the film in the movie, what you're actually hearing is the British Grove stuff very carefully laid on top of the Abbey Road stuff. And what you get from Abbey Road is sort of the scale of an IMAX picture. And what you get from the British Grove is the definition of like a HD camera. And that's why I think, and Casey Stone, the engineer, balanced all that so perfectly. I mean, credit has to be given to him for taking basically two orchestras and making it sound like one cohesive performance. I, I think it brings to another great point, and that is the relationship you have with the orchestra. People should know that you're not just a composer 
and and not just an orchestrator, you're a conductor as well. Mm-hmm. And I think what you're talking about is is the idea of having an energy in the room where everyone is playing off each other. I was wondering if you could talk about uh, how do you bring a great performance out of the musicians? Because it's not about just hitting the notes, it's the way the instrument is played. Well, I would not presume to portray myself as, you know, a proper concert hall conductor the way Bernstein was. I'm a composer who conducts his own material. And generally, the material I'm conducting is music that the musicians are sight reading and have never really played before. And so the mechanics of a film recording session are such that they're sitting there with music they've never seen before. They've got a pair of headphones on that's playing a click track. They see me conducting, and then in front of my podium is a screen that displays the beat, the bar number, where they are on the thing. So if they're playing and they can look up, they can see, okay, we're coming up. Let's say they have 18 bars of rest and they start playing at 40 bar 44. They're looking at that counter going, okay, 42, 43. And then they play in between all that is me up there waving my arms around. And it's not like they're doing Beethoven's fifth where they could play it from memory. So they can just sit there and look at me. So what I'm trying to give them as a conductor in this film session, because I've written the music and I kind of, more than anyone else there, I know how it's supposed to go. It's almost like a dance at the risk of sounding a little goofy. It's it's almost like an interpretive dance so that when they look up and they see me and the way I'm gesturing, that inspires them hopefully to perform the piece from what they're seeing from me. In addition to what they're reading on the paper and you know, what they're hearing the other musicians do. They look at me and they see me. Let's say it's a really frenetic piece, but the violins have a nice legato line over the top of it. Well, when they look up and they see me conducting legato, they know, oh, he really wants me to milk this line and and bring it out, you know? So that's really what I try to bring to conducting. And I've been on sessions where I'm not the conductor and they've gone totally fine. But I feel like the work that I've done that has really affected people has been the stuff where I've been out there conducting. And there is a school of thought that says that by being out on this podium conducting and not being in the booth with the director, I'm perhaps sacrificing my relationship with the director, that I should be there working one-on-one with the director rather than having my music editor or orchestrator in there doing that. And there's a validity to that. But for me, at the end of the day, I don't do jobs so that I can get more jobs. I try to do the best I can on the movie. And if ends up being the last movie I ever work on, at least I can say I did my best and I did everything I could to make it the best it could be, that I gave them the best score they could get. Allow me to begin to wrap yep. things up. An element of you that just keeps impressing me is the idea of, of wanting to to stay prolific. It ranges from films to short films to TV projects, and it just it, it baffles me, and I think it shows the dedication, the love for it that you have. I was curious to ask you, because these different projects have obviously different lengths and different budgets, Perhaps the bigger ones allow you to be an Abbey Road with a full orchestra, you know, mm-hmm. and smaller ones might require you to work with a synthesizer. Right. Do you feel like budget sometimes poses limitations to creativity or? Uh, look, absolutely. You have to, if you know there's not going to be a budget. Well, how do I put this? If Disney called me and said, we want you to score a Star Wars short cartoon that we're making that's going to play in front of episode nine, but we don't have any money for a live orchestra. And then they send me the thing and it's all space battles. I'd be like, we've got to get, a, I can't do the star Wars language with synthesized trumpets. I just can't do it. 
we're going to have to find that money somewhere. And maybe within that scale, you make compromises. So maybe what I have to do is I have to go somewhere that's significantly less expensive than Abbey Road, but also significantly less adept at playing, which means we're going to need a little more time and we're going to have to do things maybe in pieces. We do four bars and then the next four bars and we do those four bars until they're perfect and then we move on. So like I know like Kevin Kiner on the Clone Wars and Rebels project gets fantastic performances out of orchestras that are not the London Symphony. And it's sort of that sliding scale between how difficult is the music you're writing, how good are the musicians, and how much time do you have? And you find the point in that triangle that's giving you the best of those three aspects. And with London, you really don't have to worry about playability or acoustics. You know, They're going to be able to play it. There's not a lot of rehearsal for the score to Revenge of the Sith, you know? They're basically sight-reading those things. And then during breaks, he may make revisions, and then they'll do another take. You're almost never hearing take one in the finished film, but they're not rehearsing for two weeks and then recording it. They see it, they play it, he listens to it, they make adjustments, and then they record it two or three more times, and then they move on. You know, and they put the finished take together by editing between the multiple takes that they took. So, yeah, I mean, if, if Disney... To use this Disney example, if I was then told, absolutely not, it has to be synthesizer, well, then I've got to figure out another solution. Because if I try to write, you know, with synths, I probably could get away with it because the sound design of explosions and TIE fighters may cover it up enough that I could get away with it. But it wouldn't be ideal. Let me ask you one last question. We begin this episode by talking about your early experience when you were 15, scoring mm -hmm. your first film feature film uh so if you could give one piece of advice to your 15 year old self before all the life and projects and the many more to come what would it be what would make life easier if you could give yourself one piece of advice it's good it's a good question i mean i guess there are two answers i could give you one would be a professional answer and one would be a personal answer uh, the personal answer would be don't mistake professional relationships for personal relationships and i've made that mistake and i regret it now the um, professional advice I guess I would give myself is I, I'll say this. When I was at Abbey Road, every once in a while, I'd stop, you know, during between cues while the musicians are putting the next cue up on the stands. And I just sort of step outside my body and be like, I'm recording an album at Abbey Road. Like, I remember being 15 or 14 or whatever. And I took Skywalking out of the library, which was a biography about George Lucas and reading it and sort of being blown away by what this guy was able to accomplish in creating star Wars and then creating Lucasfilm and Skywalker ranch and you know, this toy empire and this video game empire and having this dream of working in Hollywood. I guess if I could tell myself back then, like you're, you're going to be there someday. So, you know, stick with it. It would be, it would have been encouraging in moments where I was like, Oh, is it ever going to happen? But I don't have like, um, you know, I don't have a professional regrets, you know, I mean, I have opportunities that didn't fall didn't land my way that I wished would have there, you know, there's movies that are being made right now that, you know, I thought I would be part of that. I'm not, but you know, it's only a movie. It's know? only a movie. There'll be more. I think you've done incredible work so far and you're going to continue to do incredible work. Joe, I can't like, I can't thank you enough for your time. You've been man. so, so generous. So again, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me.
And there you have it, folks. We would like to thank Joe for being so generous with his time and for welcoming us into his Los Angeles studio to record this episode. Thanks again. And stay tuned for upcoming episodes with new guests. I'm Brando Benetton, and you have been listening to Soundstage Access.